This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive into a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. And this week we are back to regular Jeopardy episodes. Uh, yeah. We had that, yeah, we had that break last week, the last two weeks, uh, with the rerun of the Goat Tournament and Ken Jennings' first and last regular season episodes. Um, but we are back to regular episodes. I suspect that listeners of the pod will know that these were taped before coronavirus. They're not defying shelter-in-place orders. They're not making stupid decisions. They're just running stuff they taped in, like, February and March. Yep, back back when we were figuring it all out, I guess. I think these were taped without an audience and that they added in, like, a laugh track and applause track. Yes. Yeah, because they never cut to the audience. It would feel very strange for Jeopardy suddenly to not have an applause track. Yeah. Uh, but they, I guess they had to uh, put that in in post rather than use use the actual audience reactions because there was no actual audience, except I imagine for um, the other contestants waiting to play. Yeah, I would think so. And I wonder, actually wonder how they, I mean, I, they had the whole uh, studio. Yeah, they might have spread them out. Although we were, did we know about social distancing so much then? I guess we did. Oh, yeah, we did. for sure. We did. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember. It's been quarantine forever. <laughs> I, yeah, that was at least four years ago, so it's hard to hard to know. Yeah. Anyway, so we're talking about um, the week of May 18 to 22, and on Monday, May 18, we have the contestants Megan Elliott, a writer and editor from Redlands, California, Ben Scripps, a television director from Cadillac, Michigan, and Jesse Lehman, a public policy director from Long Island City, New York, whose two-day cash winnings total $43,400. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. First names the same. African American history. They didn't survive the film. Words with double letters. W in quotation marks. So each correct response will begin with a W and have a double letter. Nonfiction. And plant on the flag. This was a this was an interesting game. It was it was certainly um, fun to watch. There was a, a lot a lot going on, a lot that happened in this game. I enjoyed the the plant on the flag category, uh, mm-hmm. although I, I thought it ran a bit easy. Maybe I am more aware of uh, uh, flags, and I believe it's called I believe it's vexillology is the study of flags. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I'm more aware of it than I think I am. Yeah, this this category ran a bit easy. There was a triple stumper at the $1,000 level. It's Spain's flag depicts one of these tropical fruits that gave Persephone so much trouble. And that is a pomegranate. Although the reason it's on there is not because of Persephone. It's because uh, of Granada, which is Spanish for pomegranate. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that it represents the addition of Granada to the Spanish at the time empire because uh, this the the crest on there has the the kingdoms that uh, were united under uh, Ferdinand and Isabella. Huh. 
I didn't realize that. Uh, I noticed at the $200 level of nonfiction, um, a book that my husband just finished listening to, The Power Broker by Robert Caro, is a biography of Robert Moses, an official who guided the growth of this city for four decades, and that is New York City. Uh, Robert Moses was hugely influential in New York City, um, and The Power Broker is like a huge tome of a biography. Um, I think the audiobook was 40 hours and he, my husband had been working on that one for, I think, years, on and off, working his way through, uh, telling me Robert Moses facts. He so <laughs> was an interesting figure. Nice. Yeah. Well, we get the Daily Double at the $1,000 level in the nonfiction category. Megan finds it, uh, and she wagers 2000 of her 2800 She's in the lead at this point over Jesse's 1600 and Ben's 1200 and she gets the clue. In a 2016 work, Nigel Cawthorn recounts the lifelong feud between these two inventors that electrified the world. Uh, and she knows that that is Tesla and Edison. Mm-hmm. So she adds 2,000. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Jesse at 5,000, Ben at 4,000, and Megan at 8,000. Really nice round scores. It's very, very nice. And we get the double jeopardy categories of let's have a planet, da, you speak Russian, rock band, band as in B-A-N-N-E-D, the Andes Mountains, playwrights, and corporate scandals with David Faber, who reads the clues. The let's have a planet category ran, um, I thought, a little trickier than a lot of their planet categories. Yeah, there were there were a couple in there that were not necessarily obvious. Mm-hmm. Including the um, second Daily Double, which Ben uncovered on the third pick at the $1,200 level of that category. He wagered 3000 of his 5200 At that point, Megan had 8000 Jesse had 5000 And he got the clue, it has an equatorial radius of 3,963 miles. He guessed what is Mars. The correct answer there is Earth. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is divide the circumference by pi, right? Or something? Right. Yeah, you could do <laughs> that. like that. Just do that in 10 seconds or whatever. It's yeah. fine. It's easy. I mean, I think maybe, uh, not nobody, but it, it would surprise me for many people to know the radius or diameter of earth the circumference is more more common. accessible yeah. uh, more common and i think that i would have guessed earth just on the thought that it would not be reasonable for jeopardy to ask about the equatorial radius of any other planet right if they gave a very huge number i would say jupiter and if they gave a not very huge number i would say earth and that's it <laughs> yeah <laughs> So about 4,000 times 2 to make it the diameter times 3.14, and you get about 24,000. You know that's about right. Yeah. Unless you're my English professor I complained about on the outtakes reel. That's right. (laughs) Um, We get the final daily double uh, in the Da You Speak Russian category at the $800 level. Ben found it, and he wagered 2,000. He was up to 7,400 to Jesse's 4,200 and Megan's 9,600. And he got the clue, 
Also called the great sturgeon, this species lends its name to a type of caviar. And Ben claims he knows it, but he can't remember it. Uh, and Alex informs him that if he had been able to come up with beluga, he might be having some later. Uh, alas, he did not, so he lost 2,000 and moved down again. Mm-hmm. A- after that second daily double, Ben kind of came back, made that money back, Jesse dropped down a little bit, then came back. But uh, the second half of the round, Megan just took off. Mm-hmm. She got a lot of the, a lot of the late clues, um, higher value clues, and uh, she ended up with a, a very specific kind of lead mm-hmm. at the end of the game. Yeah. Uh, so this is called a lock tie game. Megan is in the lead with eighteen thousand eight hundred. Ben is in second place with 9,400, exactly half of Megan's total. Jesse has 5,400. And they get the final Jeopardy category, America in the 1700s. And the clue is, every state shall always keep up a well-regulated and disciplined militia, sufficiently armed and accoutred. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Nobody says that word. Is in number six... Of these, Jesse wagers 5,200 and responds correctly. What are the Articles of Confederation? Ben has wagered everything, 9,400, which I think that's, I think that's the right thing to do pretty unambiguously. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would see that as the only possible option. Yeah. And he is correct, landing at 18,800. Megan has missed it. She responds, what is the Bill of Rights? She has wagered 2,200. If she had wagered zero, it would have gone to a tiebreaker. And with a zero wager, she would have guaranteed herself either a win if Ben missed it or a tiebreaker uh, if he wagered everything and got it right. But in this case, she uh, she just loses. Ben is the winner. Um, and there's some there's been some chatter about whether she should have made that zero wager. There is a strong case to be made for a zero wager here. On the other hand, if you wager anything and get it right, a dollar to everything you have, then you don't have to face the tiebreaker. Um, and the tiebreaker is largely a test of buzzer speed. I would argue. True. How would you have how would you have played from her position, Kyle? Um oof, that that is a tough tough call. I honestly I think given the America in the 1700s, I feel pretty confident in I think I probably would have bet to say, okay, I'm going to put this entirely on my own knowledge rather than a buzzer speed test. Right. If it were, I mean, it's a, it's a tough call. It's a tough call. I mean, but on the other hand, I also felt that I was faster than the people I tended to be up against. So maybe I would have, maybe I would have just given it to like the tie break. I don't know. Yeah. I think there, there are Jeopardy nerds who would say if you're going into Final Jeopardy in a, in the lead of a lock tie game, you're probably good on the buzzer. Sure you know, uh, relative to your competitors. But, you know, I wasn't up there. Um, yeah. So. It's hard to say. It's really yeah. hard to say. 
And going to a tiebreaker feels really intimidating. Yeah, because like I mean, you, nobody get nobody has played the game and gotten in first on every clue. You know, so mm-hmm. there's got to be a part of you that's like, I, I just don't want to risk that. Right. So I uh, no no judgment for for deciding to make a wager, um, no. but oof, tough break. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But that means that Ben is the winner. Moving on to Tuesday. So on Tuesday. We have Jackie Wong, a consultant and figure skating analyst from New York, New York. Tiffany Vickers, a consultant pharmacist from Louisville, Kentucky. And Ben Scripps, a television director from Cadillac, Michigan, whose one-day cash winnings total $18,800. We get the Jeopardy categories, Bills, 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 TV in 2020, Still Standing in Europe, Cool Beans, Words that should rhyme, and the writer's creation. I don't think Alex got the joke on Bills, 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 or the reference. I don't know that I get the reference, but it's the reference. Oh, it's, um, it's a, it was a song from, uh, gosh, was it late 90s? Destiny's Child. Mm, I was not a big Destiny's Child fan. Yeah. When did that song come out? I'm looking it up. Uh, 1999. <laughs> Okay. There you go. <laughs> as, as previously discussed, if it is a song that came out in 1999, I know it. That's, that um, is correct. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, this, this Bill's 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 category was people named Bill. Yes. Good thing Bill Nye was in there. Mm-hmm. Good thing. Yep. Although Bill Nye was followed up with Bill Nye. <laughs> Which that was a funny pairing. Yes. That, yeah, like that's tricky. That's tricky, you guys. Mm-hmm. Jackie finds the first daily double as the fourteenth pick of the game at the six hundred dollar level of still standing in Europe, and wagers sixteen hundred. That's a true daily double. Ben had three thousand at that point. Tiffany had zero, and he got the clue. Built in the 9th century, the castle named for this European capital looks out upon the Vltava River. And he correctly responded, what is Prague? Yep. The words that should rhyme category was really surprisingly tough. Yes, that was difficult. I'm trying to remember the term for these. They, they or maybe there's not a term, uh, but they were words that are would look like they rhyme based on how they're spelled, um, but are in fact not pronounced as rhyming words. So um, adjective meaning perceived by ear and a type of facial hair. That was the $200 level. The, that is uh, Tiffany rang in and said beard and heard. Um, respectively, they are heard and beard. Um, not to, not to be forbidden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the contestants flipping them also like made it hard for me to keep track of what was happening. Yeah. Although you say them in the order that you figured them out, I think. Sure. Yeah. That's probably how you would do it. That's how I did it. Yeah. I like the $600 one. Gorgonzola for one and multiple ganders. That's cheese and geese. But that's because you love cheese. I do love cheese. Gorgonzola is a great cheese. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ben is in a solid lead with 6,000, Jackie is trailing with 2,600, and Tiffany has 2,000. 
And we get the categories bills, bills, bills. Uh, if that sounds like a repeat, it is. But this time it is about legislation. Uh, Great American Songbook, Historic Homes, The Lord Deals with the Biblically, Dinotopia, and A Before E. Yes. I wondered in the A Before E category, and they didn't specify whether there would just be an A that came somewhere before an E in the word or whether they would come in a row. Back it, to back. It turned out, yeah. It, yeah, it turns out that they had to be consecutive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought I thought that category ran pretty easy, except, except for the $2,000 glue I did not, I didn't get. Mm-hmm. But up until that, I felt like they were, they were pretty, pretty gettable. Yeah. The $2,000 clue was several evergreen trees go by this name, Latin for tree of life, which is arborvitae or arborvita. Tay? Tay? Tie? Tie? Tie. Arbor Vitae. Crazy. I did pretty well in the dinosaur category. That was a fun one. Oh, yeah. Dinosaurs are one of those things where, uh, like, there are not many subject areas where small children memorize, like, loads of facts, but Mm. then those things aren't in the trivia canon. But dinosaurs is one of those things where it doesn't come up as much in trivia, um, at anywhere near the depth that, like, small children's dinosaur knowledge yep. goes. Um, so I felt like I got to use my use my dinosaur knowledge uh, that I've that I acquired through like through my own childhood and also through my kids, right? Um, <laughs> which which I don't get to do so much. No, um, not really. Yeah, we had a Triceratops clue. We had a Velociraptor. We had. Uh, Stegosaurus one we had um, at the $1,600 level. Brontosaurus comes fairly early alphabetically in dinosaur names, and it was once classified by this name that's even earlier, and that is an Apatosaurus. Ben got that one. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was learning dinosaurs as a kid, they had switched it from Brontosaurus to Apatosaurus and then subsequently switched it back. Yeah, that's. I think that is correct, because I, I yeah. seem to have that in my head, too. Mm-hmm. Come on, science. Get it together. Yeah. The Daily Doubles come pretty late in the round. Daily Double 2 we find in the Great American Songbook category. It's at the $1,200 level. Ben finds this, and he... He had really taken off in, da- in uh, Double Jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah, he had a much more consistent game this time than, than the previous game. So he was up to 19,200 at this point over Tiffany's 4,800 and Jackie's 7,000. Uh, and he wagered 2,200. And he got the clue. It became Etta James's signature song and Beyonce sang it at an inaugural ball for President Obama. And he gets it correct. That is at last. Mm-hmm. So he increases his lead. Yeah. And this was one of those fun back-to-back Daily Double games. Um, yeah. So on the very next clue... He uncovers Daily Double number three. It's in the $1,200 level of The Lord Deals with Thee Biblically, um, which they'd really shied away from. They hit the $400 level as the sixth pick, the $800 level as the 12th pick. They didn't touch it again until he pulled the Daily Double here mm-hmm. on pick number 26. This time he wagers just 1000 of his $21,400. Um, Tiffany and Jackie's scores haven't changed, of course. And he gets the clue... And God blessed this man and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. 
He guesses who is Abraham. That's not a bad guess. Um, you have to clue into the word replenish, replenish. here uh, to, to figure out that this is Noah. So he drops down, but not too much. He was in a pretty commanding lead at this time. Yep, he was. So he takes that lead uh, into Final Jeopardy. We have the scores 20,400 for Ben. Tiffany is at 4,800 and Jackie is at 7,000. So it is an easy luck game for Ben. And they get the category Adventure Novels. And the clue, in this novel, the surname of a pastor, his wife, and four sons is not given in the text. The title was meant to evoke a 1719 novel. Uh, and this was a triple stumper. Tiffany wagered 1500 and guessed what is Gulliver's Travels. Not, and like Alex said, not a bad guess, uh, but incorrect. Jackie wagered 2601 and guessed what is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's also incorrect. And Ben uh, guessed what is question mark, which is also incorrect. Mm-hmm. It is the Swiss family Robinson, referring to Robinson Crusoe. Yep. I I figured this one out, um, trying to think about a novel that had two parents and uh, a bunch of kids and a title that related to an earlier novel. Uh, mm-hmm. Got me got me the response, although I haven't read Swiss Family Robinson and don't know much about it. Yeah, I don't know much about it either. Uh but yeah, I figured I know I know Swiss Family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe. That sounds right, yeah. like the right time period, and I can't think of anything else. So yeah. So going into Wednesday, uh, we have Rachel Keen, a compliance specialist from Washington D.C., Nathan Berger, a restaurateur and sommelier from South Portland, Maine, and Ben Scripps, a television director from Cadillac, Michigan, whose two-day cash winnings total $38,158. And we get the Jeopardy! categories, it was all yellow, German animal names, hats all, folks. The end is just beginning, E-N-D is in quotation marks, and will come up at the beginning of each correct response. Portland, they give you the port, you name the country. And out of their league. I like the Portland category. That was a, a, a tougher geography category, I think, across the board than we're mm-hmm. used to seeing. Like, yeah. Like the $200 clue was Haiphong, which I am not aware of. I guessed Vietnam because it sounds Vietnamese, but I, I did not have a, you know, I didn't have knowledge of that. Yeah. And I don't think, I think that still might have been the easiest one in the, in the category. Mm-hmm. I got the $600 level. Uh, Incheon, also home to this country's busiest airport. That's South Korea. Mm-hmm. I think I knew of the airport ah. um, and got it that way. Uh, on the flip side, I thought the end category was very gettable. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the only one that I thought might give might have given trouble was the $1,000 clue. A variety of chicory, this plant with curled leaves, is cultivated as a salad green, and that's endive. All the rest of them were quite quite easy right and um nathan who got that one is a restaurateur as as we just noted so um, i would expect him to do well with any food clues yes and as was pointed out on i don't remember which episode i was in that it was but 
The word is restaurateur. There is no N in that word. That's right. Uh, that was the one with um, Lauren and Sean, right? Was it? Was it? You, I, yeah, I probably. think so. Did you get a rebound off of Lauren on that? I got a rebound off of someone. That I mean, that might have been right. I, I don't remember the yeah. specifics there. But yes. Yeah. Yes, there is no N in restaurateur. Yeah. The Daily Double shows up in the German animal names category, which I loved. Uh, I loved that whole <laughs> category. Basically because German words, like everything is a compound word. It's so funny. <laughs> they, <laughs> if you break it down, it's just... Yeah. Anyway, uh, it comes at the $600 level. Nathan finds it. He has 800 And rather than risking all of the 1000 he goes with saying, let's make it a true daily double. Which this time is intentional. I know we've mentioned before, sometimes it seems unintentional for the... The player to do that, but he makes that very clear. Uh, you know, if you've gotten on a plane and what you're imagining is yourself on the stage saying, make it a true daily double, like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe go ahead and give up the potential $400, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So he gets the clue. This bug's German name, Steckmucke, translates to stabbing gnat. And he guesses what is a wasp, which isn't a bad guess, uh, but it is a mosquito. Yes. I loved the whole category, too. Mm. Right before, right below that, we had uh, Nachtschnecke, a German word for this gastropod translates as naked snail. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, why give them separate words? Right. Separate, like, uh, yeah, that's a slug. Yeah. Yeah, the whole category was delightful. Really fun. I, some, somebody had fun with that. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ben is in the lead at 7,400, Nathan is at 2,600, and Rachel is at 1,400. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, characters from American folklore, consecutive Oscar nominations, peace talk, literary landmarks, Alexander the Great, and high-scoring four-letter Scrabble words. They had trouble with those Scrabble words. Oh, they did, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, had a, we had a forget the category moment at the $800 level. Similar to a vixen or attractive. 17 points. Um, ben guessed what is vulpine, but unfortunately that does not have four letters and probably isn't 17 <laughs> Scrabble points. I have no idea. Um, That's, boxy. That might be it, yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to yuck anybody's yums, but I've never heard vulpine used to mean attractive. It's true. I mean, you can like what you can like. Just no judgment. On behalf of the many, uh, I should, maybe I shouldn't identify myself. But, uh, it, it is a common trope among, I don't know, like women of my generation that everybody had um, had a, a uh, girlhood thing for uh, the animated Robin Hood fox. Oh, I mean, I'm aware of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, women wanted him and men wanted to be him. I know, mm-hmm. I know what that yeah. is. <laughs> um, so maybe, maybe it's, you know, <laughs> I, I'm totally wrong. You're right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, they, they struggled with that category some. They had a hard time with um, the $1,600 clue, an act of deception, 14 points. That's a hoax. And they showed a picture. This humped variety of ox originated in South Asia, 15 points. That is a zebu. <laughs> yeah. My daughter said... Dad, what is that? I said, well, it's a kind of ox, sort of like a cow. And she's like, oh, 
can they walk? It's like, yeah, they've on <laughs> legs, kiddo. Like, what do you, what do you mean, can they walk? She's like, oh. And then she went off to do whatever else she does. Mm-hmm. That, that was her concern for the Zebu was if it can walk. Yeah, presumably. <laughs> I mean, I would think so. Um, I don't think I would have known the Zebu was an animal if it were not for the VeggieTales song, Song of the Cebu. Um, um, yes. And that is Cebu, uh, C-E-B-U, which is not an animal. I'm not really sure why. It's clearly meant to be similar to a Zebu, but for whatever reason, that uh, it's a, it is a silly song about a bunch of Cebu. Yeah. Um, probably copyright, you know. Um, the Zebus are very litigious. <laughs> that must that's the only possible explanation. Uh, we find Daily Double number two in the Alexander the Great category at the eight hundred dollar level. So Ben finds it and wagers two thousand of his seven thousand four hundred. Uh, Nathan has eight thousand six hundred at that point, and Rachel has four thousand two hundred. He gets the clue. Alexander tried to look to the future by consulting the this of Zeus Ammon in the Sahara, but never revealed what he had learned. And he correctly responds, what is the oracle? Man, I, I must have, I don't know if it was neg bait or not, but I, my mind went to Sphinx and I was like, done, got it. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> yeah, I guessed oracle, although I didn't know for sure whether there was an oracle of Zeus Ammon. Yeah. Um, yeah. I clearly did know that. Oh, and <laughs> we had a funny moment at the $2,000 level of that category. Uh, the clue was, after defeating him in battle, Alexander placed his own cloak over the corpse of his Persian foe, the third king of this name. Rachel guessed Xerxes, uh, that's incorrect. Um, then Nathan rang in and said, Darius, and didn't get a response either way because he hadn't phrased it in the form of a question. Mm-hmm. So he corrected himself, but he also, I think, maybe wasn't sure if the problem was pronunciation. So he changed it to "Who is Darius?" Yeah, which <laughs> this is the 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 problem of the Jeopardy contestant is that we learn all these things by reading, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we have to go say them on TV. Yep, that can be terrifying. It it's terrifying. We're just taking our best guess, hoping. That we pronounce most things correctly enough. Yep. Uh, but the internet can be merciless about that. What? Since when? Yeah. Since the beginning of the internet, I think. Mm-hmm. We had a little bit of Canadian geography again. Mm. $800 level in peace talk. The clue is deriving its name from the settling of a dispute. The Peace River flows 1,200 miles across British Columbia and this province just to the east. Ben broke Alex's heart by ringing in and saying, what is Manitoba? Mm -hmm. But Rachel managed to salvage it and got it right. It's Alberta, which Mm -hmm. we have talked about our our mnemonics for remembering the provinces. Yes, we have. We get Daily Double number three in the Characters from American Folklore category. Uh, it's at the $1,600 level. Ben finds this one as well. He is at 9800 which is in second place. Nathan is in the lead at thirteen eight, And Rachel is in third place at 5800 uh, And he wagers 4600 so a sizable bet. And he gets the clue. This Texan cowboy hero 
tamed a mountain lion and rode it like a horse, using a rattlesnake as a lasso. Uh, Everyone's favorite lasso material. Yeah. Yes. I mean, if you could, wouldn't you? Probably yes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I would. Yeah. He doesn't know, and he guesses who is Sam Houston, which that gives a whole new... (laughs) whole new level of awesome to, uh, to the story of Texas. But no, uh... It is Pecos Bill. Mm-hmm. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Nathan has 11,800, just barely a lot game. Um, Rachel's at 5,800 and Ben is at 5,200. They get the final Jeopardy category, classic TV sitcoms. And the clue is, I Love Lucy used the French word on scent in the 1952 episode title because CBS didn't want this word used. And Alex clarified before the reveal, but after the after the answers were locked, that they thought the word was vulgar. Ben has the correct response. What is pregnant with a $601 wager? Rachel hasn't come up with anything and has a $1,000 wager. Um, Nathan has wagered 199, the maximum he can wager without risking his lock game, um, and has the correct response, what is pregnant? So we will see him again on Thursday. That's right. And on Thursday, we get Sean Buell, a civil engineer from Zachary, Louisiana, Michelle Cantor Cohen, a voting rights attorney from Silver Spring, Maryland, and Nathan Berger. And Nathan Berger, a restaurateur and sommelier from South Portland, Maine, whose one-day cash winnings total $11,999. And we get the categories. Drink up, it's thirst day. Geography. Channel that abbreviation. Facts and figures. Ye old with Y-E in quotation marks. And story of myth. I... As we know, enjoyed the myth category. I thought you probably did. Um, I thought it was pretty accessible. I did too. Uh, there were a couple of triple stumpers in there. Uh, one of which I thought was a, a a very tricky clue. It's a six hundred dollar level. The clue is: This god of love fell in love with the mortal psyche of whom his mom Venus was jealous. Nathan rang in and guessed who is Eros. Which is only incorrect because this is looking for the Latin, or the Roman names rather than the Greek names. Because the correct response is Cupid, who is Eros, only mm. Roman rather than Greek. Sometimes I feel like they let you get a little mushy with that. Maybe not. Maybe I mean, not on Jeopardy. They specified Venus in the category. Yeah. So Cupid is the son of Venus, whereas Eros is the son of... Uh, Aphrodite. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So a little tricky there. The only one I didn't know was the $1,000 level. An errant lioness interrupts the budding romance of Babylonian youths, Thisbe and this guy. That's Pyramus. Yeah. Pyramus and Thisbe. So we get the first daily double in the geography category at the $800 level. It's the 22nd pick. Nathan uncovers it and wagers a Thousand. Uh, that's a true daily double for him. Uh, Sean has 3,200 at this point. Michelle has 1,800. He gets the clue. If you're on Nevis and have business at Government House, you need to go to this nearby island. And he correctly responds, what is St. Kitts? That's right. 
the study your Caribbean nations. Yeah. Man, island nations are so hard for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought the drink up its thirst day category <laughs> was fun and uh, fun and accessible. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And uh, they did pretty well with it. Um, not too surprised with a with a restaurateur at the champions podium. The only one they missed was at the thousand dollar level. A World War One artillery piece gave its national name and caliber to this champagne cocktail. Nathan guessed what is Cure Royale. Um, that's a French seventy five, um, which I'm not sure I've I'm not sure I've had one. Although I've seen them on like the fancy cocktail menus. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round. We have Sean in the lead at 7,400. Michelle is trailing with 2,400. Nathan has 2,000. And we get the categories for Double Jeopardy. Sold at Sotheby's. Run on sentences. Highways. Words that rhyme. Boss hog. And them Duke boys. (laughs) Uh, There's a joke there I don't get. uh, It's from Duke's a hazard. Okay. Okay, in the words that rhyme category, at the $400 level, the very first pick, a digit and a chanteuse. Michelle rang in and then you saw her think about it because do finger and singer really rhyme? Like that seems like that should go in the words that look like they rhyme. How do they not rhyme? The the G is much harder in finger than in singer. I mean, I I guess. Sure. I, yeah. Okay. Finger. Yeah. Singer. Singer. Maybe I, it's a regional accent. M- maybe. I yeah. Don't, I don't pronounce them as rhyming. And that, and that is your prerogative. <laughs> so we get Daily Double number two as pick number four. It's in the words that rhyme category. Nathan finds it. He is at 2,800, tied with Michelle. Uh, Sean is in the lead at 7,400. He wagers only 800. And he gets the clue, adjective for lowly labor and warmly affable or agreeable. And he does not know it. He goes through a lot of words, apparently. He, he's, he's, he was working, yeah. Yeah, he's talking to himself a lot, which is fine. Like, it's got to figure it out. Uh, but he come, he tries what is cheap and greet, but they are looking for menial and genial. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought the um, the $1,600 clue of uh, sold at Sotheby's is a fun thing to know about. Immediately after his Girl with a Balloon sold in London in 2018, it self-destructed by passing through a hidden shredder. Uh, that is Banksy. If you haven't seen video of that, go look it up on YouTube. Do yourself a favor. It's a pretty great video. Yeah. It's just, that's just a cool thing. Like Yeah. We get the third daily double in the highways category at the $1,600 level. Sean finds it and wagers 3000 of his 11400 uh, At that point, Michelle has 5200 Nathan has 3600 And he gets the clue the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Highway connects Fengshan and Keelung on this island. He correctly responds, what is Taiwan? So extends his lead. I couldn't think of another option for it, but I didn't have much of a reason to say, like, you know, Taiwan over anything else. So Yeah. 
Singapore popped into my head, but that's a city island nation. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't think there would be like Singapore is a, is the city. Right. Um, there's, there's not two municipalities to be connected by a highway. I'm sure there are, there, there may be highways, I assume, I don't know, but it's, you know, I don't think there would be two things that you would be expected to have heard of. Yeah. Um, sounded like these were cities or towns or, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Cities, I assume. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Nathan is at 5,600, Michelle is at 12,400, and Sean is at 18,800. And we get the clue. This is the first uh, first game of the week that hasn't been a some kind of lock game, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, we get the ca- yeah. we get the category military slang and the clue. This word for high ranking officials comes from a medal used in nineteenth century military insignia. Uh, they all get it right. It is brass. Michelle puts top brass. Nathan wagered nothing. Michelle wagered only four hundred. Mm. Not sure I see the the logic in, but uh Let me play around with math a little. Yeah. But Sean wagered uh six thousand one uh cover bit. So he is the winner. Oh, so she is trying to stay above Nathan's double up and get above where Sean is gonna drop down to if he misses. Right? Um oh, yeah. he made a cover mm-hmm. yeah, he yeah. made a cover bet of six thousand one, so he would drop to 12,799. So if she uh-huh. gets it right, she'll go up to 12,800. If she gets it wrong, she drops to 12,000. She's still out of Nathan's reach. Makes sense. So smart. Smart yep. bet. Yeah. Yeah. On Friday, we get the contestants Charles Cato, a management consultant from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Morgan Wilbanks, a physician from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, and Sean Buell, a civil engineer from Zachary, Louisiana, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,801. And we get the Jeopardy! categories yearbook photos of people in government, world facts, magazines, TV, I'd rather have, and a bottle in front of me with bottle in quotation marks. We got a... A funny moment at the $600 level in a bottle in front of me. The clue is, Dr. Spock advises about this practice, quote, sterilize carefully. Germs thrive on milk just the way babies do. Uh, Morgan rang in and guessed, what is using a bottle to feed your baby? And they they gave it to him. Uh, they were looking for bottle feeding, obviously. Um, <laughs> which... You know, frankly, I I don't know that it should be because Alex specified that the word bottle will be the first word that comes up in each right. correct response. I, like, you know, not to be an a-hole or anything about it, but really, it, he didn't fit the category. Right, so, you have to fit the category. So, but they gave it to him anyway. Uh, and Alex, yeah. Alex ribbed him, said we don't need a dissertation. Yeah. Um, and then during the interview segment, we found out that he has a three-month-old at home. Um, Which is probably why he's not able to, like, (laughs) put together a real sentence. His words are problems for him right now. Uh, But also, uh, it's going to make it funny at the viewing party, he said. Although, I guess whatever viewing party they're having is via Zoom. So, oof. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. I did terribly with the yearbook photos of people in government category. Like, I got Ruth Bader Ginsburg... 
But the others, like, I just, I don't know, something about seeing them so much younger kind of, like, broke my brain. I couldn't, I couldn't get many of them. Oh, I got Biden, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I got, um, I got Biden. I got all of them. I did get I all think of them. I, yeah. I would have maybe done better if I weren't looking at the yearbook photos and just tried to go from the descriptions of their uh, subsequent government careers in the clues. Sure, sure. That, I mean, that made it easy, yeah. The, the faces I didn't really recognize, but the other yeah. the other parts were there. We get the Daily Double in the World Facts category at the $600 level. Sean finds it. He is in a pretty good lead at 6000 over Morgan's 1000 and Charles' 1800 uh, So he wagers 3000 And he gets the clue, the Bass Strait separates this smallest state of Australia from the mainland. So that is Tasmania. Mm-hmm. I uh, had a I had a good rant a week or two ago on the podcast and um, wanted to connect it back to the magazines category at the thousand dollar level. The clue there was in the <laughs> book "Save Me the Plums." Mm-hmm. Ruth Reichel recounts her days as editor in chief of this fancy food magazine that ceased to be in two thousand nine. That is Gourmet Magazine, um, which I knew. But in, uh, anyway, "Save Me the Plums." Is a reference to William Carlos Williams. <laughs> Damn, I cannot get away from that. Uh. <laughs> Who should have left the plugs in the icebox because they were being saved for breakfast. Anyway, just just a little consideration. Is that is that how, Williams, just a little? Is is that how you feel? <laughs> it is how I feel strongly. I was I wasn't um, aware of that. Huh. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Um, which you probably were saving for breakfast. Like, he 100% knew. He knew. He knew he was not supposed to touch those. Anyway, all right, um, on to Double Jeopardy. We have Sean at 11,000, Charles at 3,000, Morgan at 2,600, and we get pretty close to my dream board here. Um, (laughs) Broadway musicals opening numbers, graphic novels, physics, on the money, I'm uh, not as crazy about that one. A 1970s year, that is not my dream board. Each correct response there will be the year in the 1970s in which the clue occurred. And that word is quite a character. Yep. This was a great board, I thought. It was a good board. It was, yeah, I, I enjoyed it too. Mm-hmm. Probably not as much as you did. <laughs> yeah, loved it. Although that 1970s category can... Just go find some other board to hang out on. No. <laughs> oh, I was I was actually thinking I did uh, I did pretty well there. <laughs> oh, nice. In the graphic novels category, um, we started right off with uh, the March trilogy, asking which current congressman co-wrote the trilogy about his experiences during the civil rights era. That is John Lewis. Um, those are great. Hmm. Um, yeah, book recommendations with Emily. Check out the March Trilogy. They are three very accessible graphic novels about John Lewis's experience as a civil rights activist. Nice. Um, as a young man. So, um, yeah, they're great. Good history and, like, well-written, well-drawn. Um, we had The Watchmen in there. We had Sandman. Oh, Sandman. I, um... Actually, my computer is sitting on top of, um, like, the huge Sandman tomes right now. Mm. Um, yeah. I can't remember what you call this size of book, but they're... Uh, oh, Omnibus. Yeah. Oh, oh. Um, yeah. I was going to say really, I think. really big. 
Yeah. Um, and we had, oh, we had, I haven't read Brian K. Vaughn's Why the Last Man. Um, the clue there was about what Y stands for um, in that graphic novel where most of the men have dropped dead. Um, that's chromosomes. Um, but Brian K. Vaughn's um, Saga series, I'm a huge fan. Um, and uh, all right, that's enough book recommendations for Emily, <laughs> but really just the, the whole category. There was one graphic novel on here that I hadn't read, and I'm like, whoever wrote this is on my wavelength, so I'm reading it soon. Nice. Um, yeah, so Usagi Yojimbo has been added to my list. Um, and, I, and I'm going to get to Why the Last Man, um, but I've been kind of... Do you, do you ever have an author you really love, but you save some of their work to read later because you don't want to have read everything they've written just yet? Or is that me? That is not me, I will okay. say. All right. Yeah, I, I, I want to I want to come back to Brian K. Vaughn, but like... Okay. Yeah. Saga was such a great reading experience that I didn't want to like go through too much of his work too quickly. Sure. Um, yeah. We get Daily Double number two uh, in the physics category. Morgan finds it. Uh, he's at 6,600, tied with Charles behind Sean's 9,800, and he bets it all. Mm-hmm. And he gets the clue from the Greek for heat and power. It's the branch of physics dealing with the flow of heat and energy. Uh, and he gets it correct. That is thermodynamics. So he yep. bumps himself up to a good lead at that point. Mm-hmm. And the third Daily Double comes as the 20th pick in the Broadway Musical's opening numbers category at the $1,200 level. Morgan finds this one as well. Wagers 5,000 of his 16,000, so strong wager, um, although he will still have a solid lead if he misses. Sean's at 8,600 and Charles at 6,600. He gets the clue, food, glorious food. And that is from Oliver. He gets that one correct. Mm-hmm. Um, extending his lead. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Morgan has a lock game. Another lock game with 21,400. Sean has 10,200. Charles has 8,200. And we get the category Ivy League Geography. And the clue is this state borders three other states with Ivy League schools, but doesn't have one itself. Charles has wagered 8,000, so almost everything, and correctly responds, what is Vermont? That is correct. Um, Vermont borders New Hampshire, which has Dartmouth. Uh, Massachusetts, which has Harvard, and New York, which has Columbia and Cornell. Sean has wagered 6,201, so he drops down a bit um, uh, because he has responded, what is Connecticut? Connecticut has Yale. It is technically considered an Ivy League school. Um. (laughs) Ooh. Ooh, Uh, throwing some trash here. Um... And uh, Morgan has not wagered anything. Um, he also guessed Connecticut, uh, but he holds a spot with a lock game, and we'll see him again on Monday. Yeah. You know, the cool thing about uh, growing up out here in the West is we just, like, don't give a shit about Ivy League or anything like that. <laughs> yep. Okay. So that's the week. Mm-hmm. And, it, and next week, the teacher's tournament starts. Tune in May 25 through June 5. Yeah, so it starts on Monday. Yep. That'll be great. Okay, so we'll see... 
We'll see Morgan back um, after the teachers tournament concludes. Yep. And speaking of teachers and other people who don't make a lot of money, check out our Patreon. You can support us financially on Patreon by subscribing. We have subscription levels from $3 on up. Uh, and you will gain access to exclusive bonus content. And at the higher levels, we'll even invite you into some of the decision-making process. So yeah, check it out. Patreon.com slash potentpotables. All right. Do you have guesses about the deep dive, Kyle? I do. Okay. Let's go to the Tuesday game, I guess. The Lord, okay. Is it in The Lord Deals With Thee Biblically? It is. Okay, that's what I thought. And uh, is it... Oh, man. There were, there were two triple stumpers and I missed Daily Double. Um, um, okay. Let's see. They're all good. I'm gonna... I'm gonna... Since I already know it's the category, I'm just gonna take one guess. Okay. I'm gonna take one guess, and that guess is going to be Joshua and the Twelve Tribes. Oh, that is the one. So, okay, I would have I would have taken Cain or Noah uh, because I uh, I decided that um, those are both from the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be great uh, given that we had two missed Genesis clues to do uh, to do the book of Genesis. Although I thought about Joshua as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. All right. So you're going to be talking about Phil Collins, right? <laughs> you know, um, I was very tempted to uh, to work a lot of Genesis into the quiz, but I ended up not doing it. Um, <laughs> yes. So Phil Collins. No. Um, <laughs> uh, no. So uh, we're we're going to be talking about Genesis. I'll talk a little bit about like the scholarship around like the composition of Genesis. And then move into kind of an overview of the content. It seemed to me, looking at these clues, that if you know Genesis at, you know, at a, as a narrative, these would be pretty straightforward to get. Um, so that that was my goal here. We'll see how I did. Preparing this deep dive was more a matter of pulling myself back uh, than of researching because Genesis has 50 chapters the chapters are pretty short segment it's like usually it's like around like one to one and a half maybe columns on the on the page but anyway i've i've probably preached and taught about genesis for i don't know maybe 40 or 50 hours when you add up all the pulpit time you know and like i'm and like i have you know i have 20 minute sermons on you know single verses or like short little narrative sections and anyway so i needed i needed to sort of pull it in and try and try and stay at more of a bird's eye view level Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so but talking a little bit about um the like composition of genesis and scholarship around that um so you probably know that the traditional view is that Moses wrote the the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, mosaic authorship is what we call that. Um, oh, maybe tiles. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, although the books themselves do not say that they're by Moses, and that view kind of took shape in um, 
in the second temple period. So um, second temple period is like 500 BC up to um, first century CE. Um, so somewhere in there, they start thinking of, uh, of those books as being written by Moses. And the reason that happens is that Jewish people who hold these texts as holy are um, being influenced by surrounding cultures that are much more author focused. Mm. Um, in Hellenistic cultures, it matters a lot who wrote something. Um, it had not mattered to them so much up to that point. Interesting. But it comes to be seen as written by Moses. That belief doesn't really hold up to historical scholarship. So there are evangelical Christian circles that still hold to uh, belief in mosaic authorship and certain Jewish communities also do. But for the most part, uh, that's not widely believed um, and certainly not by any, any biblical scholars. The discipline of historical criticism of the Bible um, starts as early as the 16th century. Historical criticism being trying to understand the world behind the texts, how they took shape, what sources they might have come from. Um, there are various kind of schools and um, focuses of historical criticism, but it all it starts to take shape as early as the 16th century. Really starts to come in, into its own in the uh, 18th and 19th century. Uh, at that time, they are calling it higher criticism. The, think of this as like a more scholarly way, less devotional way of approaching biblical texts. Yeah. So in 1780, a scholar named Johann Eichhorn starts to develop what we call the documentary hypothesis. He is, as a biblical scholar, um, is noticing, and you know, scholars are noticing um, what we call doublets. So um, in Genesis, especially, we see similar but not identical pairs of accounts that suggest to us that there were two different, two or more different sources um, that were combined into a single text at some point. And he's also seeing uh, different ways of referring to God. Um, so Eichhorn theorizes that Genesis came from two sources that he called J and E, um, the J being for uh, Yahwist or Jehovist. I could do a whole sidebar on where we get the word Jehovah, but I would need a whiteboard and for this to be a video. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, the, the E is uh, for Elohist, the, the source that referred to God as Elohim. Gotcha. Um, so the scholarship around that continues to develop. Um, there's different different scholars looking at it, trying to sort of pick apart what sources are there and how they got combined. Um, and in 1878, so about 100 years later, a scholar named Wellhausen proposes the new documentary hypothesis. Um, and this one held for about 100 years. Um, he thought there were four sources, uh, which he called J, D, E, and P, that make up the five, the five books of the Torah or the Pentateuch. Uh, those are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he had a whole theory about how those combinations happened, um, that J and E were combined into one source, and that the P source drew on the JE source, but then the ultimate source drew both on the P source and on JE. We've talked about the names J and E. P stands for priestly. So the thinking was that one source seems to be very concerned with the, um, the kind of religious laws that were do the domain of priests at the time that this was being put together. 
D is for Deuteronomist, and uh, that source does not come up at all in Genesis, but does in um, in Deuteronomy, obviously. Um, and I don't think it comes up in the other three, but it may. The Deuteronomist, I think, has a, a similar voice, they thought, to um, what we call the Deuteronomistic history, the, the, the several books after those first five books of the Bible. So this was what was being taught in seminaries. This is what scholars thought about the sources for those first books of the Bible um, for about 100 years. In the late 20th century, the documentary hypothesis as it stood started to come into question, and some sort of shuffling happened about, were there really four separate sources? Um, and a consensus started to has started to emerge around the idea of a priestly source as a clear single source, and then a non-priestly source, including like J and E material. That is both way too much depth and not nearly enough. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But while we're talking about this uh, biblical source material stuff, let me throw in a tangent for uh, trivia people about New Testament stuff and just say that there's similar conversations that happen about the Gospels. And the big thing you need to know for trivia purposes is that scholars theorize that there was a source that has been lost that they call Q, which is short for Kfela, which is German for source. <laughs> so yeah, there, there are commonalities between Gospels um, that they can't account for without thinking both of both these writers, Matthew and Luke specifically, must have had access to a single text that we no longer have. Yeah, so um, so that's uh, that's a little bit about what we think about how Genesis came together. A lot of the original sources would have been passed down as oral traditions for centuries before ever being written down. And we think that that these written sources probably started taking shape like from the from the monarchy period and that the, the Genesis in its final form takes shape maybe during the Babylonian exile, so around 6th century BCE. Um or, or a little bit after that. But certainly in, in response to the Babylonian exile, which sort of shifts the emphasis or like the shifts the way that religion is practiced so that text becomes so much more important because there isn't access to the temple and the kind of rituals of place that had been kind of the core of religious practice. Anyway, going into the, like the content of Genesis a little bit, So these are the earliest stories of the Bible, starting from the creation and going through the uh, some of the patriarchs of Israel. So we split Genesis into two divisions, um, chapters one through 11 of Genesis, we call the primeval history. Um, Chapters 12 through 50 are the patriarchal or ancestral history. Uh, there's a recurring motif that happens throughout Genesis. These are the generations, um, and often those are paired with genealogies. Um, that's those like so and so begat, so and so begat, who mm-hmm. begat so and so. Like those passages, yeah. which most people just skim through if they read it all, and that's fine. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but the very first, uh, the very first chapters of Genesis, of course, are uh, the creation stories. There are two accounts of creation in Genesis. The first is the more poetic. God creates, you know, on the first day, on the second day, on the third day, etc. And then on the seventh day, God rested. 
The second creation narrative in chapter two of Genesis has like more of an agricultural focus. Um, So this is the one that is centered on the Garden of Eden, uh, where God creates a man and then animals as potential companions for the man and the man names them, but none of them is a good companion. And then God creates the woman, Eve. And so it's a, it's a little different. And then it moves into the, um, the narrative with Adam and Eve and the serpent. That'll all sound pretty familiar. There's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're expelled from the garden. And then they have children. Um, they have Cain and Abel. Um, that's uh, it's one of our triple stumpers there. Um, that was, and he went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Yes. So, um, Knowledge of that yes. particular passage got me a correct Final Jeopardy response. Yes, it did. I remember that. Because yeah. um, I sure don't know the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, so Eve has, uh, has two children, Cain and then Abel. Abel is like a shepherd figure. Cain is a farmer figure. Abel uh, is sacrificing to God and, and his sacrifice is pleasing to God. Cain gets jealous and kills Abel. God curses Cain and sends him to the land of Nod. And then Adam and Eve have another child, Seth. Um, the rest of the Genesis account has to do with the descendants of Seth. Um, and it's likely that the Cain account had something to do with explaining like who some of the neighboring um, peoples were at the time of, uh, of this composition. It's like you can see some kind of markers when you look really closely at the, the description of what happened with Cain's descendants. Mm-hmm. And then we get a series of begats. I'm not going to go through it all at this level, but we do see Methuselah mentioned um, in this sort of chain of generations right. from, from Adam and Eve to Noah. Um, so Methuselah is the figure with the uh, the longest life of any figure mentioned in the Bible. He lives to nine hundred and sixty nine years of age. Although he, you know, he's always like touted as like this the old guy, but there are plenty of others in that list who live over nine hundred years. Right? It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like that much longer. Yeah. Nobody has a really good explanation. I guess I should also say there's like the, this text is like twenty five hundred years old. And from sources that are hundreds of years older than that. And so it just all sounds weird to modern ears. It's very influential. But like what they were trying to do and what information needed to be passed down, like was like a lot of it doesn't make sense to us anymore. Like our our uh, priorities are different or, you know, like and so I'm trying to I'm trying to summarize, but also. Yeah, there's just there's a lot of weird stuff about Genesis. One and one such weird thing is it keeps reporting people living over 900 years and we have no idea why or what changed or you know, I mean I don't historically think anyone was living to 900 years old. Um but like Yeah, how did they yeah, me- how did they measure a year, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have we have no real explanation for that. Maybe there's some biblical scholar who's worked on like what did that mean or why was it important? Or, I don't know. But but yeah, there's just like gajillions of weird things about about Genesis that, you know, that we just that we just live with. Anyway, so um so now we get to Noah. Um there's this weird passage about Nephilim, um, who are sons of God, who want to be with daughters of humans. In any case, things are getting weird. God decides to blot it all out and try again. 
God is going to send a flood. Um, so this is where we get the Noah's Ark narrative. Uh, and I'm going to try and assume that people are familiar with sort of the the mo- the best known narratives. I'm not going to summarize Noah's Ark. But I will note that it is one of the best known instances of doublets. Because if you look at it carefully, um, there are two accounts of how many animals he's supposed to bring onto the Ark. In one place, you see one pair of each kind of animal. And in the other place, you see seven pairs of the animals that are clean and I believe one pair of the animals that are unclean. And that's the kind of uh, discrepancy that makes scholars think that more than one source was combined and that led to uh, led to the scholarship of you know trying to look at uh, the sources behind the, the text that we have. Yeah. Counterintuitively, people think that the one pair of each source would be the priestly source and the seven pairs of clean animals um, and one pair of unclean would be the other source because the priestly source would know that God hadn't declared certain animals clean and unclean at this point in the narrative, and so that distinction wouldn't make any sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's complicated, but it's it's kind of a fun fun piece of that. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, so we have we have Noah and his uh, and his family members on the ark. There's the flood. They send out the raven. The raven doesn't return. They send out the dove. The dove returns. Uh, God makes a covenant with Noah and his descendants. Um, they are not to eat lifeblood. This is, I think, the first kind of um, dietary restriction in the Bible. What does that mean? Not that's to a, eat that's a, lifeblood. That's a good question. I think that the way that's been interpreted has been about like draining blood from slaughtered animals before, like before before cooking or consuming. Okay. Yeah. And God puts the rainbow in the sky as a as a sign of the covenant that God will not flood destroy the earth by flood again. So now we've got Noah and his Noah and his sons replenishing the earth. So that's that was our other missed clue. Um, Ham, Shem, and Japheth are the sons of Noah. And there's this whole thing with like the curse on Ham. Ham sees Noah's nakedness and that's not okay so he's cursed um <laughs> again just like it's like a whole other like it's a whole other world whole other set of norms and assumptions and you know a whole a whole other culture that we don't have well preserved and so you know like a lot of these things just are, are tough to understand or interpret or to know what was behind them yeah anyway and then we get the Tower of Babel narrative. Humans aspiring to build a tower to heaven. God doesn't like their hubris and confuses their languages. Um, so that's like the start of humans having different languages. Um, and that sort of marks the end of the what we call the primeval history, begins the, um, the patriarchal history. And so we pick up with the first great biblical patriarch, um, who at the beginning of this narrative is called Abram who is called by God to go to a country that God will show him. Um, he goes from Mesopotamia to um, to Canaan, to Israel, with his wife Sarai, as she is then called, and, and his nephew Lot. There are a couple of, a couple of narratives here where um, Abram and Sarai have to um, flee for one reason or another and go to some 
foreign place where Abram pretends that Sarai is his sister rather than his wife, uh, Egypt in one case, and then the other one is, I think, a Philistine town named Gerar. Yeah, so he they flee to Egypt. He pretends that Sarai is his sister um, so that Pharaoh won't have him killed out of jealousy, and then Pharaoh takes Sarai into his house as one of his wives. It, it gets real weird in Genesis. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sometimes when people talk about biblical families, I'm like, I'm not sure you've read it. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, these families are not really what you're describing when, when you talk about quote-unquote biblical families. Anyway, um, okay, so uh, so yeah, we have, we have, like, uh, we have Abram pretending that Sarai is his sister so that Pharaoh won't have Abram killed and take his wife and instead. Yeah, anyway, we have Abram and Lot split up and Lot settles in Sodom. That's going to become important again later in Genesis. We have this like dream vision where God promises the land to Abram and his descendants. and But but there are no descendants at this point and they're getting on in years. Um, Sarai gives Abram her handmaid, Hagar, to, um, to bear him a child. And the way that things work in that culture, that child will be like you know his his heir uh so hagar has a son and they name him ishmael at some point in here um god changes abram's name to abraham and sarai's name to sarah there are some visitors who are angels or maybe god it's never clear um they promise there's going that sarah is going to bear a child and then we go over to the sodom and gomorrah narrative god says sodom is evil uh abraham bargains with God, like, oh, you wouldn't destroy a whole city for a hundred righteous men, would you? And then, and God says, no, for a hundred, I won't destroy it. And, you know, and uh, Abraham sort of like continues to negotiate until eventually God agrees that if there are even 10 righteous men in Sodom, then God will not destroy the city. But ultimately there are not 10 righteous men. <laughs> we have the, we have the whole Sodom and Gomorrah story. Um, that's a trip. So Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Um, and all I will say about that is that how we interpret, how it that gets interpreted as part of modern political debates <sighs> seems to me to have no bearing, little little or no relationship to what's actually there in the text. Anyway, Imagine that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the Bible, if you actually read it, it, um, it doesn't really seem to be trying to answer a lot of our contemporary political questions bizarre um yeah it's almost like um, that's not its purpose yes i you know i i love it and value it and think it's important and if you're trying to use it as a reference volume for the things that you want answers for that's not going to work for you anyway um so sarah conceives and bears a son named isaac they send hagar and ishmael away and then we have the narrative where God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and they go up to the mountain, and at the last moment, God provides a lamb for the sacrifice, and Abraham does not have to sacrifice his son. Not too long after that, we have the death of Sarah. Um, Abraham sends Isaac to seek a wife, so Isaac marries Rebekah. Um, then Abraham dies, and Isaac is our kind of our patriarch at that point. So um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are your three patriarchs of Genesis. Rebecca has twins, uh, Esau and Jacob, um, and Jacob is a trickster figure. 
all of his stories make more sense if you're sort of familiar with tricksters and willing to um, willing to sort of see Jacob in that tradition. So he tricks Esau into giving up his birthright for uh, like a stew. Yeah. Um, then he tricks Isaac into giving him the blessing that is supposed to be for the firstborn son. There's this whole thing where he like puts goat's hair on himself and whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Then he flees because um, he has uh, really messed things up with Esau. So he goes away uh, to find a wife and then he gets tricked. He falls in love with Rachel, but Laban at the wedding ceremony brings the bride Leah wearing wearing a veil. Um, and so Jacob marries Leah instead of Rachel. And then uh, he's made he's made this deal where he's going to work for seven years for for Rachel's hand in marriage. So he he marries Leah and then has to work seven more years uh, to get to marry Rachel. Then he tricks Laban again um, by manipulating the breeding of the flock. Um, they've made this deal that he'll get to keep all the striped animals and Laban will keep the solid animals. At that time, they thought that the uh, like the traits of an animal or human would depend at least in part on what the what the mother was looking at at the time of conception. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, so Jacob puts like stick like sticks at the bottom of the water trough to uh, so that the so that the uh, so that the flock will be looking at the the striped bottom of the water trough and uh, lambs, right? Mm-hmm. They're sheep. Um, will will be striped, yeah. So yeah, he uh, he is. It doesn't make any sense because that's not actually how science works. But the people composing it didn't know that. Anyway, finally, he has worked off his his debt and is free to go with his two wives and their two handmaids, who are also his again biblical families. Um, yep. Uh, yep. Uh, over the years, he has twelve sons. These are the twelve tribes of Israel, or the you know the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as a daughter named Dinah. And there's a whole thing with Rachel, his favorite, um, but initially has no children and then eventually has just two and, and dies fairly young. As they're fleeing, there's more trickery. Um, Rachel is Rachel steals the, like, the household gods from Laban's household and hides them from him. And that's a, that's a whole fun uh, narrative. This is the point where we get, as Jacob is returning... To his uh, to his home, um, that's where we get the story of him wrestling with an angel, um, and his name is changed to Israel, and he is reunified and reconciled with Esau, um, and uh, and then we move into the Joseph narrative, which makes up a big chunk of Genesis, uh, starting around chapter starting at chapter thirty seven. We have the story of Joseph recapped in the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh. With, with some with some accuracy, actually. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so we have Joseph who um, has these visions and is like an interpreter of dreams. He makes his brothers jealous, describing uh, dreams of himself ruling over them. And he is... Uh, he's Rachel's son, so he, he is uh, Jacob slash Israel's favorite. Um, so his brothers fake his death and sell him into slavery in Egypt. Yeah, his brothers do, um, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a narrative that's inserted, like, in the middle of the Joseph narrative, and we don't really know why, about a figure named Tamar, 
who she's married to a man and he dies. And then because of the tradition of leveret marriage is what it was called. Um, so her, his brother is supposed to marry her and have children with her so that the deceased brother will have an heir. So the brother Onan marries her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is from this that we get the uh, now obsolete term, on- term Onanism. He does not have children with her. You can, y'all can go look that up if you want to. Yeah, it's a family podcast. He doesn't have children with her. <laughs> um, uh, but he dies. And then there's another son, but they won't marry her to the third son because they're worried about, you know, what, like, that that he will also die. She disguises herself as a prostitute. I just said this is a family podcast. <laughs> um, she decides, disguises herself as a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law into having children with her. Mm-hmm. And then reveals that it was her all the time. And uh, and so this family has to do right by her rather than leaving her widowed and penniless. Ah. Yeah. So that's that's just like in there in the middle of the Joseph narrative. And, and I'm not really sure. We don't really know why. Um, but anyway, back to Joseph. He is taken into uh, Potiphar's house as a servant. Um, there's that whole thing with uh, Potiphar's wife trying to lure him to her to her to her bed and then making accusations against him when he won't um he ends up thrown into jail where he interprets the dreams of his cellmates who are a baker and a cupbearer for pharaoh one of whom ends up being released back into pharaoh's service and so joseph gets a place in pharaoh's house as like an interpreter of dreams where he correctly predicts a famine and helps pharaoh prepare uh, stores for that, which leads to Egypt being well prepared for this famine, such that the family, the other 11 brothers, come down to Egypt looking for food to get them through this famine. Not recognizing Joseph, they uh, they do business with him and uh, he like tricks them basically into getting getting them to bring their father down. And then he reveals that it is him. And uh, that's um, that's pretty much the end of Genesis. Yeah. Um, and when we go into Exodus, right, like the sons of Israel have gone down into Egypt. Right. Yeah. And so then Exodus picks up uh, explaining that over the generations that followed, a new pharaoh arose and uh, the Israelites became slaves in Egypt. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, that is an overview of the book of Genesis. Oh, Lord, that was a long overview. A bit. Um, I thought it would be helpful because it helped me a lot to come to think of Genesis as a weird narrative and patched together, but one sort of overarching story mm-hmm. about the creation of the world and then narrowing the focus in onto this particular lineage. Nice. Yeah, that's... I don't think any of that was uh, too unfamiliar to you, Kyle, but... Um, no, no. I In the times that I have tried to read the Bible, I have managed to make it through Genesis. Mm-hmm. And mostly Genesis through Genesis has some good stories. Yeah. So does Exodus. Mm-hmm. Next, next few books kind of drag. <laughs> yeah. That is the truth. Yep. I won't argue with you on that. All right. Are you ready for a quiz? Yes. Okay. So um, 
I know normally I try and be a little like oblique with my quiz topics, but this is a quiz on Genesis. Although I don't think any of these are about like the content of Of the the book book of Genesis, but they're all, they're all connected to Genesis as a theme one way or another. All right. So question one, the word Genesis comes to us from the Greek and is a root of numerous other words. So jumping over to the New Testament for a moment, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke have two accounts of a famous incident of parthenogenesis. That term, parthenogenesis, has taken on a scientific meaning with regard to species including nematodes, water fleas, aphids, and others. Um, But in ancient literature, what does the term parthenogenesis mean? I'm, I'm going to take a guess that this is referring to immaculate conception or asexual reproduction. All right. So I'll, I'll take asexual re- reproduction. Immaculate conception actually refers to the conception of Mary, uh, not the conception of Jesus, which I think is what right. you meant. But yes. Yes, that's uh, right. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, gotcha. yeah. So parthenogenesis literally translates to virgin, virgin, virgin birth. birth. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then modern scientific uh, usage, it refers to asexual reproduction. Um, so 10 points. Nice job. Thanks. All right, question two. Historical critical scholars of Genesis have pointed out resonances between Genesis and numerous other ancient Near Eastern texts, including this Babylonian epic poem, which contains a flood narrative and a garden with a snake. Uh, This work has been referenced in contemporary culture uh, in a variety of media. For instance, in Final Fantasy, where numerous installments feature a boss villain named after the titular hero of this poem with a sidekick named Enkidu. Oh, yeah. So uh, I just read this a couple years ago because it had been on my shelf for a long time and it's like really short. So I was like, I might as well, I can read this in a day or whatever. Uh, That's the Epic of Gilgamesh. That is correct. Nice job. Ten points. Thank you. Yeah, and, uh, that's probably probably would have gotten there with the Final Fantasy clue too. Yeah, uh, that's that's the one that was getting mixed up in my head when I was trying to write. I had gotten it mixed up with the Enuma Elish, um, which is another like a fragment of a of a creation myth. Anyway, hmm. glad you didn't do that one because I never heard yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, the, the Enuma Elish is much more obscure, but like of great interest to uh, to biblical scholars. Okay. All right, so question three. The notion that the snake in the Garden of Eden is in fact Satan comes not from the text of Genesis itself, but from subsequent interpretations, most notably this English epic poem published in 1667. Epic poem in 16... Oh, um... Uh, uh, oh... I apologize for having two epic poems. No, that's, that's fine. Um, I'm... There, there are a number of these that I haven't read that I know almost nothing about, so I'm picking between them. Uh, Paradise Lost is coming to mind, as well as The Pilgrim's Progress, but I'm going to go with Paradise Lost. You are correct. It is Paradise Lost. Yeah. I need to read those. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Pilgrim's Progress I've read in its entirety. Paradise Lost I've read sections, but I think not the whole thing. But yeah, Paradise Lost is like a 
I don't know what happens after the sections I read, but the sections I read were like a retelling of the like the Genesis Garden of Eden narrative, um, but heavily interpreted. And um, as with Dante's Inferno, those um, <laughs> those interpretations in popular literature just really catch people. And, uh, yeah. you know, like the, the images and ideas in there get sort of read back onto the text and people just assume that it's, that, that that's what it says. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's like, it's like layers of, uh, interpreting and embellishing. Yeah. So Genesis is a popular title for episodes of sci-fi shows from Star Trek to quantum leap to sliders to this one a superhero drama that ran from 2006 to 2010 on NBC with an ensemble cast, including among others, Hayden Panettiere and your favorite guy whose name you can't remember, Milo Ventimiglia. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Oh man, I'd even forgotten he was in this. Uh, That's Heroes. Yeah, that's Heroes. (laughs) All right, I'm I'm apparently like on on, on your wavelength. Yes. Um, yes. Because these are these are not actually easy questions. I think not necessarily. Um, no. But no, you're no. crushing it. Yeah. All right. Question five. This seminal and controversial American graphic novelist of the 20th century, portrayed on film by Paul Giamatti, produced a graphic novel version of Genesis titled simply "The Book of Genesis." Oh man. Uh. Uh. I I truly have no idea. Um. Even though that I have a guess, Paul Giamatti. I don't know. Doesn't Paul Giamatti play Santa Claus in some movie? I'm going to say Santa Claus. All right. Uh, R. Crumb is the uh, is the cartoonist, graphic novelist. Okay. Um. Yeah. All right. So you have forty points, and we're going into final. The final category is holidays. I do celebrate some of those. Uh, I'll go with the. We'll go 15 points on this. All right. So 15 points. The Hebrew name for the book of Genesis is Bereshit, meaning in the beginning. Side note, that's uh, all the five books of the Torah are named in Hebrew for the like the first, uh, mm-hmm. the first word or phrase in them. Anyway, so there's a root word in that Hebrew word, Bereshit, that comes up in the name of a Jewish holiday observed in the fall. What is the two-word name of that holiday? I'm going to go with the Rosh sound and say Rosh Hashanah. You are correct. Yes. yes. All right. So you are finishing with fifty-five points. Yeah. So um, the the b is a prefix that means um in, and the rush uh, which the vowels change depending on like what you're what you're doing with your root word. Mm. Uh, it means the beginning or the head. So Rosh Hashanah is the is like the head of the year. Uh-huh. Um, that's cool. what that means. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. All right. Well, that quiz felt really nice. <laughs> yeah, nice work. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think those were easy questions. I think you just, you, you knew the stuff. It's easy if you know it. That's... Yep. So hopefully our listeners got some of those as well. Um, uh, maybe even some of you knew Crumb. Um, in any case, listeners, thanks for spending your time with us, and thanks for podcasting with me, Kyle. Always of a delight. Of course, of course. 
Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It would be great if you could leave us a review or a rating too. Uh, Check out our Patreon if that's something that you're able to do. We're on Patreon at uh, Potent Potables. That's great. And of course, you can always tell your friends, get other people listening. Uh, As we, even though some places are opening up, plenty of places are not. And we're still working together through through this craziness. So, Mm -hmm. you know, take... An hour and a half and let yourself go. Yeah. The warm embrace of our trivia. That sound that sounded weird. But I'm, <laughs> leave but I'm, it in. I'm gonna double down and leave it in. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at uh, Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables One. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and our website is potent pod.com and we'll be back next week talking about the first week these quarterfinals of the 2020 teachers tournament so until then may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker